prayer. Father, we thank you for this evening, the gift that today has been as a whole, uh, the time in which we could come together and worship you this morning and to leave in a way that you have sent us out into the world so that we might be your people uh, within our neighborhoods, within our homes, with our friends and even strangers. And so tonight, Lord, as we gather back together, uh, that we would continue to soak in your word and be reminded that you are faithful, even when we are faithless. And so, Lord, uh, teach us and guide us this evening. We offer these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Let's start out with uh, some of the study that we had. If you didn't get to week two, it's okay if you didn't. But I do want to hit a couple of questions that you might have, uh, <coughs> might have thought of. As you could tell, that week two was uh, probably a little bit thinner in amount of reading compared to week one. Week one was filled with jumping all over the place. Uh, whereas week two really kept you mainly uh, within uh, Ezra 1. You had it jump over to, I think, Exodus once, and I think Haggai. Yeah, Haggai and, as well. Um, but if you would, look at some of the questions. Let me, let me start out just generally. Where, I what were some things? Reading. I what, did week three. No, that's all right. That's all right. That's all right. You, you're just working ahead. Did you already do week two? No. You just jumped over two. I got. That is okay. What page are we on? It, what, it's uh, page twelve. Really, is where it starts with the reflection and discussion. Week twelve. Sorry. Two. Page twelve. Week two. Sorry. And you're going to see that we have. Probably belabored being in chapter one for so long, but it is really important in setting up the whole of the book of Ezekiel. Sorry, of uh, Ezra and also Nehemiah. So, what anything pop out? I'll just speak generally here. Anything pop out to you on pages 12, 13, or fourteen? Something that really grabbed your attention. All these names just wore me out. They I are. tried to get in there and catch up a little bit, but I'm telling you, that just... Whoop. It is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No doubt. <coughs> and there's some that will, as we work through it, that will um, catch our attention a little bit more than others, and they should catch our attention a little bit more than others. But I'll tell you when we get to that point, say, all right, pay attention to this person. This is really important for later in the story. If you don't. Okay, this one, uh, Jeremiah. Mm -hmm. Catch me up on that. Which I one remember was that? us going through King Cyrus and his proclamation and all that was supposed to come about. But this Jeremiah. Yes. Alright, so um, Jeremiah 25 is dealing with uh, the 70 years. 
Jeremiah being a prophet uh, is once it comes to if we can do a timeline of things Jeremiah's coming before Ezra and Nehemiah and what Jeremiah is doing is he's been given a word in Jeremiah 25 about this 70 years that will take place um, the 70 years is so deeply embedded within the mind of Israel that they know that there is a time where they will be in exile for approximately 70 years. And so when you, whenever you hear any math thrown out years like that in Scripture, don't think that it has to be exactly 70. All right? Um, it could be approximate 69, 72. That would still have been favorable for 70 years. Other thing is that the number seven is very important for the, for the Jewish people. If you go back, story of Genesis, what is the seventh day? The day of... Yeah, it's, it's holy. It's made holy um, because the Lord rested. And on that day, he saw that not everything was just good, but it was very good. So the number seven carries completeness. It means completeness and fullness and wholeness. I was born on the seventh. <laughs> you were born on the seventh? And it was on Sunday. Oh my goodness. You're holy of holy, which we'll get to that tonight. And it was Easter. Oh my gosh. 1946, April 746. You can check it out. Holy moly. <laughs> there it is. You need to play the lottery. <laughs> uh, but seven is wholeness, fullness, completeness. And so when you hear the 70, Jeremiah is talking about how many years approximately that they're going to be in exile but it's also uh, symbolic <coughs> that your sin your disobedience will be met in completeness and fullness it will be atoned so to speak because you've been in exile for 70 years you have now met the fullness of your sin and you will be brought back by a group of leaders Zerubbabel and Ezekiel uh, excuse me, Ezra and Nehemiah so it's that 70 is very important. And as the author, what's her name? Um, Kathleen, Kathleen Nielsen. Uh, she talks about the prophecy during Judah's fall. And then she has read uh, Isaiah 44 through 45. Isaiah foresaw these events a century, approximately 100 years in advance. Um, and so which Isaiah is looking at is... Is Cyrus in those in that chapter 44 through 45? This particular ruler from this particular place will be the one who unleashes the chains of the people who have been in exile for 70 years. So, even in the language of Isaiah 44 and 45, Isaiah is considered a Messiah. It's, the Hebrew word is Mashiach, which means. Well, if he foresaw, if he foresaw things a century ahead of time, he must be very special. Oh, you bet. <laughs> and Isaiah is one of the earliest prophets. He's eight, eight hundreds, maybe into the late seven hundreds. So yeah, he's he's paying attention, and he's definitely um, a prophet where. He's being tested in many ways, but one of the ways that you knew who a prophet was, according to Deuteronomy, is that his word, whatever it was that was spoken, 
didn't stand the test of time. And so Isaiah and Jeremiah, they are confirmed as prophets because you see these events happening just as the way God told them they would. And so, yeah, Jeremiah 25, Isaiah 44 through 45, very important for the people of God as they're coming out of exile because they, 70 years, oh my goodness, this is what Jeremiah spoke about. Oh, this King Cyrus. Oh, this is exactly who Isaiah spoke about 100 years ago. So yeah, they see themselves in the middle of God's work as soon as they're leaving uh, Babylon, excuse me, Persia. Uh, from Babylon by the hands of Persia. Very important. I think it's confusing because the world is not in chronological. Yeah, and it is difficult. And really, once it comes to laying out, there are Bibles. There is a Bible. Chronological Bible, and some of those are guesstimates about who who comes before who. Because um, just for example, like Proverbs probably wasn't until the third, second century before Christ that it, it actually comes together in its fullness. Uh, but you see how Isaiah's first of the major prophets, and then you go into Jeremiah, and then you go right after him, Ezekiel, um, and. The reason why, that's where you have lamentations, but it's connected to Jeremiah, is mainly for um, profit purposes. You have a great length of time that uh, Isaiah is, is speaking about certain events, and you have Jeremiah doing the same thing about certain events. And then um, moving into Ezekiel, he's talking about certain things and certain events. And so when the Bible is composed and pulled together um, before the time of Christ, the Old Testament, they're doing it with purpose. Um, and let me just take this as an aside to say they wouldn't have had a Bible like this. There would have been a bunch of scrolls. You know, they had cubby holes, essentially. And uh, if, if you were a teacher or a... Uh, some sort of uh, law or uh, scribe or some lawyer or scribe at that time, you would have known where everything sat in the cubby holes. If you were told to go read Isaiah, you knew where Isaiah was in your cubby hole. And you go and pull it down and find your place. Um, so it wasn't easy. But for them, they weren't so caught up in time and dates. Like, did Isaiah come before Jeremiah sort of thing. They sort of knew that they were talking about certain events. Their, their years were much slower than ours. Yeah, and you got to remember, too, their calendar dating. You know, we, we take advantage of the type of dating. Um, you know, January to December, that wasn't composed until 2nd, 3rd century, maybe late, early in the 400s, a group of monks, Gregorian monks, um, that are pulling these together. And giving us what we know as the modern Western calendar. They didn't have that type of calendar. And one of the dates we'll actually look at tonight, um, they had, and that doesn't mean that they were dumb or confused. Their cycle um, of understanding the days and the time were actually pretty precise. In fact, Persia in that day was probably one of the most uh, technologically advanced. Um, Babylon, most certainly, technologically advanced people. They used the moon and the yeah. sun. Yeah, 
And, and that's all they have, is the skies above. Mm. Yeah, there's great precision. They knew exactly when to uh, till their fields, when to plant. They just watched creation, mm -hmm. and they did likewise. And so yeah, we're gonna look at a few dates tonight, uh, dating for their calendar, how it's important to uh, living a holy, li a holy life. Anything else on those? We'll definitely uh, have a change of gears for week three, but you know that. Week three, um, and it's dealing with the temple building and then opposition to that. So we're moving out of Ezra 1 and 2 and finally into Ezra 3 and 4. And I was thinking back in my brain for the past couple of weeks on why, because you know we dealt with a great amount of time, the temple last week or two weeks ago. So... Dealing with that, I knew that that would set up us understanding a little bit more clearly the importance of Ezra 3 and 4. And then, racking my brain, what else do we need to consider as it relates to um, the temple and building us towards Ezra 3 and 4? And tonight, what we're going to spend some time on is uh, holiness. Because temple and holiness go hand in hand. Absolutely go hand in hand. And we'll see that, uh, those reasons why here in a second, because it tells you, we'll see the entire storyline of Scripture from Genesis uh, onward into the New Testament as to why that is. Hey, if you want, I know some of you are already taking notes on those, but if you want some of these, you're more than welcome. I'm obviously. You already got yours along over there. That's fine. No Take them home. Uh, do whatever you want with your wish uh, and I'm actually probably going to lay these out at the back of the church for anybody to grab during worship uh, so let's start out tonight Genesis 3 so open your Bible to Genesis 3 we're going to start in verses 6 and 7 Somebody mind reading those verses, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 3. I got it. Go ahead. <laughs> when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she also, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay. So... If we put it in our own words, what's going on right here? Well, temptation and sin. sin. Yeah. All right. Temptation, desire, sin, a uh, outright disrespect, defiance. defiance. Yeah. Way better word than when I had. D defiance of God's clear instructions. Leave it to Eve. And they want yeah. the power. No. Oh. My reading is. I I don't leave it just to Eve. My reading is both both of them are there. Mm -hmm. And in, in mm -hmm. fact, she, he's so close, and the Hebrew gives you this kind of language, he's so close that she hands it right next to him. She's proximity wise. They're beside each other as this is happening. So I actually put more weight on Adam on this. Because one, he knew the instructions. And two, he should have known as a leadership that he was supposed to pass this to his wife. So my reading of Genesis right here is that Adam is probably the one 
who is um, greatly defying God's instructions and also belittling his own leadership. Not telling Eve, this is what we're supposed to do. And the beauty of this passage as a whole is that what does God tell them that they can do? What are they permitted to do? Eat from all the other trees. Everywhere. everywhere. Except that one it goes back to that, don't tell me I think. I almost <laughs> pulled that into scripture, <laughs> that, into our Anybody sermon. Anybody that's a parent can relate to this. Yes. <laughs> You're exactly right. I mean, you, you can put yourself, and I know it's kind of blasphemous to say that, but you can put yourself right in God's shoes yeah. at the time and say, hey, I know exactly the same situation. You've been through it a hundred times. You know, so. Yep, and I had that in my sermon notes, and I didn't use it for this morning's sermon, but it's so true that look at all the good things that you can take of. All of it. Eat. Be fruitful. Just enjoy those desires that you have for this fruit. Good, right? But there's this one you can't touch. Don't eat of this tree. And how is it that the desire itself, there's nothing wrong with the desire for them to taste of the fruit. Yet, the fact of the matter is that they wanted something they, they couldn't. Yeah. It's outside the boundaries of what is good and right. And so, yes, you have them eating of this fruit. And then, what happens? Their eyes are open. Their eyes are open. And so, to an extent, the serpent's right is that you will know good and evil. Um, not in the ways that he's sort of twisting this. But you will know good and evil. And then what do they do directly after that? They cover themselves up and hide from Jesus. Right. Don't hide from God. Cover themselves with fig uh, leaves and then um, hide from uh, God who's now walking in the cool of the day. Now look at verse 21 of chapter 3. 20, uh, yeah, 21. Somebody read that. Also for Adam and his wife. The Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Okay. So what we see in verse 6 and 7 is that there's this opposition, this rebellion against God's good instructions, and then they quickly realize through this disobedience they are naked. They, in other words, they feel ashamed of their own sin. They feel guilt for their sin. And what do they try to do? They try to cover themselves. Now, what do you see in verse 21? He made them garments. Yeah. Where's the garments from, guys? From animals. How do we know that? It says of skin. But does it say anywhere that God sacrificed anything? No. Mm -hmm. no. I mean, He could have just created it. He is God. He could, yeah. <laughs> Here you go. But, but even the Jewish reading, and then I'd say a healthy Christian reading of this, is that he sacrifices some animal in order to get the loin, I'm sorry, the cloth, uh, to then wrap around them to cover their own shame. So it is early on, even in Genesis 3, that we see the picture of no matter uh, what we try to do to cover ourselves, it's not good enough. Yet what is required is a sacrifice in order for God to clothe us of our own shame. Early on. Genesis 3 is happening. Alright, so now let's look at Leviticus 16. 
to hop over a couple of books, Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. 16? Yes, 16. We're going to be in verses 29 through 34. I'll read this part. Uh, Leviticus 16, 29 through 34. And it shall be a statute or an instruction to you forever that in the seventh month, here's our calendar, in the seventh month of the tenth day of that month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. In other words, a foreigner. For on this day you shall make atonement, uh, uh, excuse me, shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord for all your sins. It is the Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in the Father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall make atonement for the priest and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement shall be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. All right, so this is Leviticus. And I told you that at Exodus 19, all the way to the end of... You're, you're in the horrible spot. I know. Exodus 19, all the way to Exodus 40, and then picked up from Leviticus 1 all the way to Leviticus 27, and then from Numbers 1 to Numbers 9, 10, um, they're at where? Do you remember where I told you they were? Um, Mount Sinai? The entire time receiving the instructions, Moses receiving these instructions from God. Here we are in Leviticus 16. This is Moses receiving these instructions. But what's so important for Leviticus 16 is that this is what uh, the Jewish people call Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. If you were to read Leviticus as a whole, you would notice that this one definitely stands out. Because this is the one day of the year, on the seventh month of the tenth day of that year, where the priest would do this. And this is the holy priest, the highest priest. He would go into the holy sanctuary, what we refer to as the Holy of Holies, and he would make atonement first for the holy sanctuary, so the inner part. And then he would make atonement for the tent of meeting, so the place right outside of the holy holies, and then he would, the altar, and then he would keep going out to make atonement for the priests, and then he would eventually make atonement <clears throat> for the people who are assembled, for the people of God. So here's what I'm going to have you do. You know a bullseye, a dartboard? Mm-hmm. I want you to draw the bullseye on your paper. We're going to make about five circles, so just keep that, or four, one, two, three, four. Yeah, four circles. So start with the bullseye. And then beyond that, I want you to draw another one. Another circle around that one. And then another circle around that one. Should and then one more. Should be four in all. One, two, three, four. So circle, 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 circle. Okay. 
I'm trying to give you a visual of what takes place. We have to get in the mindset of a Jewish person in the time of when Leviticus is written. We have to get in the mindset also of an Israelite up until the time, really, and Jesus had the same picture in his head. Um, so in the very middle, if you can, put like H of H or Holy of Holies. You might have to draw a line or something like that. Or, or put HH. As you know, it's Holy of Holies. On the next one, I want you to write um, Temple. Somewhere inside that circle. And right outside that next circle, I want you to write um, Israel. And right on the outside circle, I want you to write World. 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 Alright, now I want you to draw a arrow. Starting in the middle, going outward, and I want you to stop at Israel. So start in the middle with Holy of Holies. Draw a arrow out and stop at Israel. Okay. Now I want you to draw an arrow the opposite way, but starting with the world and drawing a line all the way back to the center pointing towards the Holy of Holies. Okay. I was picking it. Got it? So you should have four circles. Starting with the center part, Holy of Holies, outside that temple, outside that Israel, outside that world. And you should have one arrow that goes from the center of Holy of Holies and moving outward to Israel and stopping at Israel. And you should have another arrow coming from the world back to Holy of Holies. Got it? Now, you, you might think, what in the world is he doing? Here's how a, an Israelite would have thought about sin in his or her world in this time. If you were a part of the world, you were a part of Israel, you were a part of the temple, or even a part of the Holy of Holies, only the, the highest priest could go in there. Sin, when you sinned, they considered that as a contamination of ultimately against the Holy of Holies. Because what resides symbolically in the Holy of Holies? Holy Spirit. Yeah, the very, yeah, the very Spirit, the very God, uh, God Himself. So all sin is contaminating who? God. It is, it is an affront to God. It's directed towards God ultimately. So whether you are the world, in other words, a non-Jew, you were, you were a Gentile, or you were a Jew, Israel, everybody commits sins purposefully or non-intentionally against the very presence of God. Make sense? Now, that's the problem. How do we remedy the problem? Well, if you look at Leviticus 1-7, through there's different sacrifices that you can perform in order to make yourself ritually clean or spiritually clean. But there's one particular sacrifice that's so important for the people of Israel, and it's the Day of Atonement. Because it's the one day of the year where all the other sins that weren't taken care of throughout the year 
can be atoned for this single day. Got it? So if anybody didn't atone for their sins, there's one day where we can say we're all clean, we have been made pure, we've been made righteous. And all of this is a gift from God because He has given us a sacrifice so that we can be washed, that we can be cleansed and be made right with Him. So, yes, they would not have seen this as very burdensome um, keeping of, of sacrifice. They would have actually seen this as a gift. The fact that they can even worship and approach this God is a gift. So, how do we deal with this? Day of Atonement. Where the one priest would enter into the Holy of Holies or the Holy Sanctuary. And what would he do? He would atone for the sanctuary itself and he would atone for those who were part of the sanctuary, the temple or the priests, and then the people of the assembly, the people of Israel. So now this is where your arrow goes from the Holy of Holies out to Israel. Remember where it stopped? At Israel. In the mindset of an Israelite, only you who understand the Day of Atonement can be atoned for. So you could not, if you were a non-Jew, have your sins dealt with. Because you were not sanctified and cleansed, made right, right here. So the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice of this goat on behalf <laughs> of Israel... That's where it stops. It doesn't atone for the world. All the non-Jews. It's just for Israel. Okay? Does that make sense? Keep that close because that doesn't go away. And in fact, when they start rebuilding the temple, this is how they think. We now need to atone for our sins and then the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, will come up where that they can be right with God. Because their understanding was if there's no temple, they're always unholy. Because we're continually being a front to God through our sin, intentional or non-intentional. We need to be made right somehow. And that's through the Day of Atonement. All right? Any questions on that? Feel free to stop me. So nowadays, I know young people are still celebrating. Yes. Uh, and and recognize. As far as just helping me understand the Jewish faith, what is more, what is more important in their faith? Is it Hanukkah? Is it Yom Kippur? Is it, what is their like? I mean, because ours is you know Easter, Christmas, right. that kind of thing. So yeah, so the Passover is probably, if I could say, the most foundational for the Jewish people. Because that's where their story really begins. Right. Um, they are in exile. They are part of death. They're being oppressed. And yet Yahweh in His goodness and faithfulness rescues and rem uh, remedies uh, the situation by bringing them from a place of death and into a place of life. So Passover is probably... Because if you look at all the festivals and all the, all of the atonement the sacrifices that are involved, ultimately underneath, I'd hate to make this generalization, but it's, it's probably faithful. Underneath, Exodus is a part of it somehow. Yeah, Passover is a part of it. It's the first, if you look at Exodus 12, 
to 15, 12 to 14, it is the first meal. It is the first celebration of Yahweh's faithfulness. And then from there, you get more festivals. Right. And more. So everything comes from that. I'd say so, yeah. Okay. I could. I'll reach out to some Jewish friends and see if I, that's faith, faithful to well, you. Well, you know, we as Christians, we should understand that stuff. At least I think, you know. No. But, yeah. Because well, I mean, we don't. We don't. We don't. Not like we should. Mm-mm. We really, it, I mean, our faith, our religion comes from that religion. Oh, yeah. You know, and I, you know, I just never, we've never been taught that part of it. Yeah. As Southern Baptist Christians. Yeah. You know, so. And if I could use this as an aside, I would love for us to go and celebrate a, a Passover meal with like Orthodox Jews who are always very welcoming uh, to Passover meals just to see what they're doing. It's beautiful. The picture of, of grace in there. And you even have, I don't know if we have any in this area, but we had some in Raleigh, Messianic Jews. Jews that continue to celebrate the festivities and, uh, that are taking place in, in the Old Testament, but they see them all rooted in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why we call them Messianic. They're Messiah's Jews. Jews yeah. that's, uh, I follow a guy, uh, Ben Shapiro. I love that guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ben okay. Shapiro on the, uh, YouTube, and, and, and he's a Messianic Jew. Wait, Rami Shapiro? No, Ben Shapiro. Okay. You should look. He might be the next president one day. Oh, Ben. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you said that because I had a a professor at MTSU who's Rami Shapiro. Right. And Rabbi Rami is what we call him. And uh, he was the one that helped un- unlock understanding right. the Testament and life of Jesus. But this is, he's not a, a follower of Jesus. Right. right. He's actually very liberal um, in his understanding of of faiths as a whole but he did help me understand well I understand what you're saying about Jesus but look how it builds into him he was at least helpful in that way Um, so I thought that's what you're talking about but I didn't know Ben Shapiro was a Jew yes or Shapiro yeah very Jewish all right so let's look at we're running out of time let's look at uh, Mark 15. So we're going to jump into the New Testament. I could take you to many other places in the Old Testament, uh, but we, again, have so much time. I'm going to have you jump to Mark 15. And we're going to look at verses 33 through 38. I'll read these. And this is the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness in the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink and said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Look at verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The scholars love this single verse because it's almost like it's just thrown in there real quick. You have this Jesus being crucified and then you have this very detailed uh, account of what is happening on the cross. Jesus crying, breathing his last, 
And then you just have this moment of, hey, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. What temple, curtain temple, is he talking about? At the temple of the Holy of Holies. Yes. Yes. Now look at your... If the curtain of the Holy of Holies is torn in two, what is Mark communicating in this very moment? We look over this so quickly. Well, it's, it, it renders the Holy of Holies not at this point. Yeah. It, it takes the importance and the significance of it away. And because the Spirit of God is not there. Right. Where is He? He is in Jesus. Now He resides in all of us. And He's unleashed into yes. the world. So here you have Mark making a very, very profound statement that in the very death of Jesus, atonement isn't only made for Israel, but now where does our arrow extend to? Into the world. So you could even put like a dotted line Mm -hmm. extending beyond Israel into the world. And you could put like a line and say Mark, Mark 15, 38, if you want, just as a side note. That's powerful, guys. That is such a powerful statement. And he only took one verse to say. But we have to have these Jewish eyes to be able to pick up on, okay, Mark is saying something really big here. And it's exactly right, Blake. He is saying, in this very moment, through the tearing of the sun, comes the tearing of the Holy of Holies. And the Spirit of God is unleashed into the world. And he also says it wasn't. It, from being this saying from the top to the bottom, which means it wasn't torn by a man. Right. Mm-hmm. Torn from top to bottom, and in fact, there's not a piece that was left together. Mm-hmm. Top to bottom, the entirety of it's torn too. I always too. thought it was torn by God. Yeah. yeah. Torn by God in order to unleash His Spirit, not only onto Israel, but all who have faith in Christ, the, even the Gentiles can and be a part of this. And even the Roman, exactly. And that's one of the reasons why uh, Mark brings this up. Because here's a Roman centurion who's not supposed to be a part of the promises of, of God. Now he is professing faith that this truly was the Son of God himself. I mean, you could be a, a proselyte of some sorts. In other words, you could, you could be a non-Jew and become Jew. But there were only certain spaces that you could worship Yahweh in the temple. They had a court of Gentiles where only Gentiles, even though they're faithful in the Jewish law and the Jewish instructions, they still couldn't go into the Holy of Places. Only certain people were allowed in the Holy of Holies, the high priests. But Jews were allowed into certain other areas that were holy. But the court of Gentiles was always outside of this. So they didn't they weren't allowed to be fully holy in the way that Israel was holy, but not according to Mark anymore. Even these can become holy as Israel is holy. Got it? So powerful. All right, let's look at uh, one more. Hebrews 10. So we're going to go towards the end, right after Peter. <coughs> Hebrews 10. I'm sorry, I said right after Peter, right before Peter, Hebrews 10. And I would throw this out for you guys to read sometime this week, uh, Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, but I'm just going to point to three verses, Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14. 
where the author of Hebrews writes, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are to be sanctified. So what is he saying? He's saying there's no other sacrifice needed anymore other than the one that, that Jesus has provided. Right. He is the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice that makes you holy. Um, so Hebrews is, a, is a, a that whole chapter, but really one through eighteen, is talking about that very nugget of truth. Um, but eleven through fourteen probably captures it the best. Is that even though priest, at least in the time of he, uh, author of Hebrews writing, it has to be before eighty seventy. So it's probably in the sixties at this time because eighty seventy is when uh, Rome completely topples the temple as a whole. Uh, so probably in the early 60s, maybe late 50s, uh, that he's writing about this. And that at least up into this day, temple worship is still being practiced. Daily sacrifices, weekly sacrifices are still being practiced. And the author of Hebrews is saying to these Christian um, uh, Jews, we need to remember that we do, need, do not need to go back to the temple and offer any more sacrifices because Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to atone completely once and for all. And not only that, he is the mediator. That's when he uses languages and he is uh, seated at the right hand of the Father, he's the mediator. He is the holy priest. He is the high priest in which we can come to him at any time. And he hears our brokenness and he hears our own pleading for him to uh, to hear our prayers and be reminded that he's the mediator between God and man. Again, another powerful passage. Have you ever been to uh, Rome? I'm, unfortunately, no. I want to go. I did. I've got a book. I did an album of pictures of all the churches and all that stuff. Yeah. And would you like me to bring it and let you see you that? I've got friends that go all over Rome and study uh, some of the amphitheaters and some of the early churches there and some of the major sites. But I'll look through any picture you have. It's amazing. I mean, totally amazing. Yep. Everybody and I wish we could build buildings like that. That's like that. seeing the other part of the world <laughs> way back. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, and the, the beauty of this is that you, know, you still have the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. You know, the, the wall where so many Jews continue to go to every single day and wail. They weep and lament over the fact that the temple has not been restored. There's no high priest. And they're looking for the day in which the Messiah will come and restore temple worship. It's been 2,000 years. <laughs> the Messiah has come. There's no coincidence, I don't think, that you have Jesus coming at the very time 
when he also tells a couple of, a couple of times saying one day this destruction of the temple is going to happen and um, the temple that you've been looking for and there's no coincidence that yet for almost 2,000 years nothing's been rebuilt I think so our 2,000 years is different from their 2,000 years probably back then uh, oh, in time oh, I'm talking about um, from when the temple fell in uh, AD 70 and then from to the year 2019 Nothing has been built between that time. There's not even, as far as I know, ever been a, an attempt to rebuild it. So, I hate to lean in the direction, but I think it's faithful to say that um, the Jewish people will, I think many will be given eyes to see that Jesus is the temple. As he told them in John 2, uh, that he's the one who's going his temple will stand again his body will be resurrected again um, and as many as the Jewish people in that day did not want to hear those words the temple is going to be destroyed because that would have been a dismantling of one the presence of God symbolically and also dismantling of holiness well, I mean and the temple does stand yeah it's it's in his people that's yeah the, that is is the temple yeah. First Peter two, Christian faith. Yeah, we are His temple. Yep. He's the cornerstone. Mm -hmm. To use Peter's language. When did I don't know this? When did Christ? What years did Jesus Christ walk the face of the earth? Yeah. So we date our years from the birth of Christ. Uh, which you know we would say zero A.D. So when the Gregorian monks are putting together the calendar system, and they're doing pretty good math, uh, again not idiots by any stretch of the imagination, but now that we look a little bit tighter into history, in the past about 150 years, there's been more research on this, and the monks probably missed it by about three to four years, which is really it's good. crazy. Yeah, they're still really good. I mean, they're 300 years out. Yeah. And they're trying to put together the math, and yeah, they were off three to four years. They don't have computers either. They don't have computers. <laughs> they're, they're working on scripts yeah. that have been handed down. They're working on mathematics that is built into the universe. They're dealing with the sun and the moon. So pretty impressive, to say the least. Uh, so if we could date the time of Jesus' birth, we would say now like three or four A.D., and he walked approximately 30 years. So 33, 34 AD uh, that, that we would date today. And so um, then you have Paul in his writing ministry. He's about 10 to 15 years after that. And he's doing that for about right at 20 years. So he's writing into the late 50s, possibly very early 60s. We had tour guides at different places, and they really confused me. <laughs> it's hard to keep... <laughs> oh, they just really confused me. It's hard to keep all the dates and what's happening historically and put it in a, into a simple grid. Well, I mean, yeah, we think linear time. We do. And that's mm -hmm. not how all this was recorded. So no. it's hard to, like, wrap your head around. It is. 
And um, Mark, again, as I told you, I think I've told you guys this, Mark is probably the earliest writing that scholars think based off of how he's using grammar and also the fact that he's the shortest uh, of each of the Gospels. And then you probably have Matthew after that, then Luke, and most definitely John. So when we look at it, we think, oh, Matthew's first, so he's the first, you know, in linear. Very likely no. They carried us through a church. And it was a small, white church. Old, 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 old. And the steps down into the church, you went through the front door, and then you immediately went down these dirt carved, carved out of hard dirt, way down into that church. And then there is an aisle at the end of all those steps that goes down to the front, and they said that Jesus walked in that church. They just had to, they had to just one day doing this and one day doing I got totally confused yeah. about when was this and when was that. Yeah, some of those older churches, especially in Syria, uh, in the first couple hundred years, they're beautiful if they're still standing. Um, I know a lot of them were completely destroyed, ravished by um, ISIS. ISIS, yeah. Uh, but. A lot of them had, I thought you were going to say that we walked down and down and down. A lot of them buried some of their very members yep. below. Mm-hmm. They could have been. In the catacombs. Yes. With the, they were the saints, you know, they of were, the church. They told us that we were not to speak a word when we entered that building. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's a, I, I've read a couple of books about, uh, about Vatican City and there uh, at the Vatican, how... How you know it's a gigantic building above ground, but it's mm-hmm. like three times that size into the ground. Yeah. And they, there's like no telling the 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 type of artifacts and oh, secrets yeah. and like stuff that would blow your mind down. It's crazy. The the people that are down there, like they think Peter is that like they they have parts of Peter's body at the Vatican. They think. Yeah. I mean, he was considered. They They had statues of Peter all over Rome. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's considered uh, the rock of the church, you know? Um, That's what his very name means. So, some traditions hold that he is the founder of the church in Rome. Um, And, you know, they set that stake on it, you know? Whether it's true or not, there's a deep tradition. Bones or that's, that's artifacts. That, that's one that they put him there to rest because they think that he is the rock to build upon. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I had. Um, I went. We went through the Vatican, but we didn't go down to any right. levels. Well, there's. I mean, there's. Most of that is off limits anyway. Yeah. Okay. It's 